In the last episode, we met Enid Baines, the protagonist of Prano Bailey Bond's horror film, Censor. At the beginning of the film, Enid is all coiled up, her hair tight in a bun. During a screening of a new horror film, she's got her trusty notebook and pen at the ready to make notes of anything that seems inappropriate or even questionable. What have we got now then? Don't go in the church. There won't be many places left for us to go soon. <laughs> Frederick North Film. Haven't seen one of his in a while. Used to be quite prolific. Don't think I know his work. Oh, here's a laugh a minute. The film comes up, and it's two teenage girls, sisters maybe, one of them being lured into a shed in the woods by the other. scream and something visibly cracks in Enid. Her gold rimmed glasses fall off, her hands tremble as she covers her eyes. What has she seen? And has she seen it before? This moment in Censor is one of her breaking points. A moment where cracks start to show in Enid and her unraveling begins. Enid is the beating heart of Censor, a film so layered with beauty, horror, and mystery that it deserves its very own podcast. So we just had to make it. Welcome to Censor This, a mini-series dedicated to dissecting some of the many layers of Censor. My name is Anna Bogutska. I'm the co-founder of the horror film collective The Final Girls, and throughout the next four episodes, I'll be talking to film critics, cinephiles, horror experts, as well as the people who made the film, to try to unpick why Censor has stuck with me, and with all of us, really, so much. You do not need to have seen the film to listen to this podcast. In fact, I hope that people who haven't seen the film yet might listen to the show and be encouraged to seek out Censor. But please be warned, there will be mild spoilers ahead. If there's any discussion about pivotal moments or the ending, we will mention it explicitly in conversation. In the first episode, we spoke about how Censor balances visceral and psychological horror. And in this episode, we'll be diving into what makes Enid Baines such a compelling and kind of terrifying central character. Throughout the episode, you'll be hearing from my chat with lead actor Neve Algar about getting into Enid's head, and to help me analyze Enid, I'm joined by Freudian cinephile, creator of the Projections lecture series, and host of the Projections podcast, Mary Wilde. I've been anticipating Sensor for a very long time. Mm. I'm a big fan of Prano Bailey Bond. I'm a big admirer. Actually, a few years ago, she attended one of my Freud Museum lectures uh, when I was teaching Lost Highway by David Lynch. Amazing. 
Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I just think she's a very interesting and cool person. So her film was on my radar for a very long time. And I'd seen, you know, a little bit of chatter about it, about being it being such a big hit at so many film festivals. I'd purposely not read anything about it. I kind of knew just basic plot stuff, but I didn't want any kind of major spoilers because I wanted to go in and really enjoy. I suppose I had very high expectations. I was kind of worried that maybe I'd be disappointed because <laughs> I was like, then I had the opportunity to see it. I can't even describe, like I felt overwhelmed. I It completely shattered my expectations. I wept so much at the end, like a real cathartic cry, you know? Wow. That I hadn't had in a long, long time. And I felt so moved and just had so much empathy for Enid. And I just love this movie. It's definitely my favorite film so far this year. Wow, big words, Mary. I love it. <laughs> so let's dig into this this reaction and all the different layers of censor and specifically Enid, who I think is such a wonderfully rich character psychologically. How would you describe her? So I describe her as a typical obsessional neurotic <laughs> from the psychoanalytic kind of lingo mm -hmm. in the sense that she seems very tightly wound initially, quite neurotic in the traditional sense of being a little bit nervous, but, mm -hmm. but very methodical, you know, um, very precise in her work, very uh, detail-oriented, perfectionistic, um, and that, that type of character always leads me to kind of become intrigued because I wonder what it is they're hiding. They're so, um, you know, they're so tightly wound. Like I remember listening to your interview with um, Neve Algar and she, you guys talked about her posture and her, how she seems to sometimes like actually redress herself, like mm -hmm. recoil herself. And there's a lot of tension in her body. So I would say that she appears initially to be quite nervous mm. and uh, hypervigilant. Um, but then it takes a real radical turn. Something else happens, which we can discuss mm. later. The whole film is about the unraveling or the uncoiling. I really, I keep using that word when I talk about Enid and about this film. And <laughs> I think it's weirdly appropriate because she is extremely kind of coiled in on herself and both in Neve's performance, which I found really physical and kind of became apparent the more the on the second and the third watch of the film, even more so, that she's so trying to contain all of herself and all of the things that have happened to her and that keep troubling her that she hasn't quite processed in a healthy way. And this this kind of methodical aspect of her, including mm. her job, which is extremely methodical, but also you know, on the surface, you'd think that a censor, a film censor, is pure judgment. You know, you're passing <laughs> judgment and deciding what is appropriate and what is um, what is allowable and what isn't allowable. And this idea of kind of protecting the audience from psychological harm or mm. or bodily harm through being exposed to, you know, in this case, horror movies. But <laughs> she she doesn't actually come across as necessarily a judgmental person. So no. I'm wondering kind of what are your thoughts about the things that she, before we start seeing 
those layers of Enid being peeled away, what do you think she is trying to hide with all of this rigidness? I think that the job she does serves a very specific function that she claims is for others to protect the general public. But actually, it's something that she derives something from from it in the mm. sense that I think she feels guilty, like a huge amount of guilt is being carried around. And she feels burdened by the events that took place in her past and her childhood. She feels responsible for on, on some level, you know, mm. for her sister's disappearance, that there's been this family trauma. And on the one hand, she doesn't remember quite what happened with mm. the with Nina's vanishing. She wasn't able to protect her, you know. Um, she feels in some way responsible for the lead up to that. That's actually something that came up in my interview with Emily Levinis Farouche, the composer for the music for Censor, who talked about trying to create music that sounded like we were being inside of Enid's head. I think in all the projects I do, I kind of need to, um, it's going to sound very cheesy, but to feel the story, mm -hmm. to, to feel it on an emotional level, which I can then turn into music. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, spending time with the script, but also once I started um, getting a cut, really uh, tuning into Neve's performance to mm -hmm. really feel a connection with Enid. And then once I'm in this kind of emotional state, I can translate that into into music because you know for me music is a is a kind of language is a mm -hmm. way of expressing emotion. So in all projects, it always starts with really uh, getting a feel for the story, for the characters, um, for the for the movie. And how would you describe kind of the the whole film kind of really hinges on Neve's performance and on Enid's unraveling, really? How would you describe that that approach musically of how the your score kind of changes as Enid uncoils, really? Well, I, so at the beginning, I basically the way I thought when I was thinking about how I would score Enid, mm -hmm. um, because she's so lonely and. I kind of always, I approached it in a sense as someone who, you know, like would hum little lullabies to herself uh, mm -hmm. to sleep, like mm -hmm. singing herself to sleep. So it was just this kind of very um, subdued singing um, mm -hmm. that then becomes more and more, like more and more strong and evolves as she's unraveling into more and more um, insane singing or out of tune or just growlings or mm. layering of very strange sounds and also because we have a shift of perspective in the film starting to bring in more and more retro or synthesizer elements mm. as we we shift this kind of perspective in the film then through flashbacks we see that Enid as a child, post-disappearance of Nina, is in a state of shock. Like she's crying, you know, she's she's being kind of um, interrogated by, by her dad. Mm. But she's not saying anything. She's kind of gone into uh, 
almost like a dissociative state Mm -hmm. where she's sort of psychologically not present. So we're led to believe by that, that she's also witnessed something terribly traumatic that her brain has simply had to delete Mm. because it's just too horrific. It's too horrifying. But that unknown space, that black void, it sort of like haunts her and it compels her to then go and fill material like a narrative of her own a constructive a constructive narrative and replace that with the void i think that's what she's motivated in in her in her job she feels a terrible amount of guilt and she's doing this job to try and kind of set the wrong things right Mm -hmm. so that she doesn't have to carry this burden anymore even before we really understand her background and especially the the disappearance of her sister we see that she's, you know, struggling underneath the really repressed surface, that she's covering something up with all of this meticulousness and control and rigidity. Mm. How do you think that trauma and that repressed trauma is presented in the film? Oh, um, impeccably. Um, <laughs> Prano, <laughs> Prano is um, herself being, of course, um, a seasoned editor. Uh, you can tell that this is like, a real um, master editor's debut film, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just so uh, well put together and so many details have been closely examined uh, with a fine, you know, tooth comb. It's just perfect. Um, I think the presentation is very, very important and revealing about Enid's state of mind. When we first see her, she seems really pulled together um, you know, nothing is out of place. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I would say it's interesting to draw our attention to her hair. Mm-hmm. When we first see her, there's not a single strand of hair out of place. It's all wrapped up in a perfect, neat bun. As the film progresses, and so does her, I guess, mental deterioration, we can kind of see her decline mm-hmm. over, over over the course of the film the hair starts to kind of like little by little strands come out. Mm. And I have a theory that you can actually tell where you are in the film just by pausing and looking at the state of her hair. I love it. Uh, Until a very crucial moment Mm. when she sat in that trailer, when she rocks up on Mm -hmm. the film set and the makeup artist is helping her get styled. Mm. And then she just like in one fell swoop lets all of Enid's hair down. At that precise moment, she sees a headline on a newspaper that Mm -hmm. says something like, depraved censor has a video nasties habit. Mm -hmm. And it's like her picture on the the front page. Yeah. I just think that's, I think we've now entered into like a delusional territory and she's gone. She's now shifted from being just a straight neurotic to a psychotic you know she's not she's now no longer uh, a reliable narrator and her hair all falls down at that precise moment Mm -hmm. when she sees that headline and she thinks that she truly is the center of that narrative and that people are following her taking pictures of her going inside Gerald's videos you know Mm -hmm. it's interesting that you bring up hair Mary because when I spoke to the makeup and hair designer for Censor, Ruth Pease, she spoke uh, extensively about the design and the importance, the visual importance of Enid's hair. 
Neve is fantastic to work with. She's, she's super cool. She's really into it. And we always discussed about her being very natural. I mean, it's kind of her being natural kind of plays into her conservativeness as well as kind of the look where she's just not making too much of an effort. Like mm-hmm. she's just not in that state of mind. She obviously, she wears a wig throughout the entire film, which was challenging because it's a very long head wig. It was like, mm-hmm. re- I think it comes down to her waist, um, but then it had to be up in this like 80s office do mm-hmm. throughout the film. So you see all the way around the hairline, which was amazing. So we had separate parts, like nape hair, like on the neck. So it looks like it's growing upwards into the wig. So when mm-hmm. her hair's up, it looks natural. I know when I started with her design mm-hmm. I think I really imagined her almost like um Sarah from Day of the Dead um, uh-huh. that kind of trying to keep control trying to kind of keep this um this measure of like her life is together and that things are going to be okay and that she's got this you know she's got this great responsibility at work which obviously Mm -hmm. she takes incredibly seriously but then it beginning to become impossible to hold on to in psychology it's called delusion of reference when you think that events out there in the world are referencing you personally this aspect of kind of not being able to find closure or to deal or process grief when you don't know what you're processing Mm. and the fact that um, Enid's sister Nina disappears but we don't find out and she she doesn't find out what happened to her is well it's kind of the the thing that never quite got healed for Enid. I wonder what Mm. you think about how her relationship with her sister is presented in the film, especially because we only really see it through Enid's memories, her trauma, and also her, you know, desperation to resolve that trauma. Yeah, it's really sad because resolution is not really possible. Closure and a natural processing of grief can't really happen when a tragedy like that occurs when the full memory of the event is, is, is not known. Memory is a very tricky thing anyway. And at the best of times, sometimes we might embellish unconsciously or misremember certain details, but we might have a general ballpark re- recollection of an event and there'll be consensus on that. To actually go into a state of shock post-trauma mm-hmm. and fully delete like fully erase something from the mind usually signals that something incredibly harrowing has taken place that any recollection of it would just overwhelm the brain Mm -hmm. and the person might you know really really spiral out of control so they have to absolutely remove all trace of it from the mind so it's kind of doubly tragic because this is not at all what Enid is prepared for. Like she was willing to just continue speculating and researching and finding an answer to that mystery. When they give her that certificate, which they say then is also her copy to keep, Mm. I think that this is actually a very triggering moment for her Mm -hmm. psychologically because 
because she really changes after that moment. She sort of maintains her persona and facade as a pro Mm -hmm. right around up to that moment. And then after that, things suddenly shift because I think that certificate is like a big stop sign telling Mm -hmm. her, you can't search for your sister anymore. She's officially gone. Mm -hmm. And that is almost when she's confronted with that mortality more than ever because at least when she was just disappeared or missing as status there was always still that hope that she Mm. could come back so she can stay in the in in a state of denial about the loss which also i wanted to tell you i thought Mm. that her name enid Mm. it could be maybe read as an anagram of deny i love it this is why i come (laughs) to you for this stuff (laughs) um and just and just being handed a, a, uh-huh. a piece of paper like that, it's all it's kind of a paradox because it's like a very repressive, tyrannical document mm. handed over to her and said, "That's enough. You can't go out and fantasize about you know your sister anymore and how she's going to come home. This is the end of that road." Mm. So in a weird way, she's just been censored, like in her fantasy life by mm. her parents. And she doesn't have that liberty and freedom anymore to continue searching for her sister. And that's really painful. She's just being cut, you know. And staying on her family a bit, what did you make of the way that through their very limited interactions that we see in the film, but quite important and intense scenes, what do you make of Enid's relationship with with her parents? Um, It's devastating. It's Mm -hmm. really sad. Like... You can tell that Ina doesn't have a life outside of her work, you know? Sometimes she answers, sometimes she doesn't, but she always expects it to, to be them. She, I think, is desperate to bring healing to them, yeah. but she's very cut off emotionally. So she's kind of like, um, I think they have like a very polite and civil relationship, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of trauma and unprocessed pain between them that they're not acknowledging Mm. when she imagines her mom in the kitchen and there's that very scary jump scare moment Mm -hmm. where the mother like turns around and screams and says it's all your fault Mm -hmm. and this is exactly what Enid has internalized for herself she's angry at herself and she believes that everyone looks at her the way she looks at herself Mm. Um, I thought the parents were amazing performers. I thought they were very Lynchian. (laughs) Alongside her relationship with the parents, Ina has very limited interactions with other people. And they're quite awkward. Not in a sort of quirky awkward, but in a sort of uncomfortable way that the idea of being close to anyone whether that's platonically, whether that's romantically, seems physically repelling to her. And there's a few scenes throughout the film that kind of, I think, really illustrate that. And I'm wondering kind of what, what did you make of the way that she related to the rest of the world, her, her colleagues, the, the people she interacts with? I, again, like initially you can see she's trying very hard to, you know, be a pro at her job. That's kind of the thing that defines her maybe initially just gives her that motivation. I think because she's trained herself also to constantly be hypervigilant and scan everything that she's looking at in her work for danger and threat and harm. Hmm. She's doing the same thing 
like in her social life and in her environment. Hmm. I firmly believe that um, this character exhibits a lot of symptoms of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. We often see her having flashbacks just in the middle of the day at work. She'll suddenly, these intense you know, visions come into her mind, they invade her mind. And I think another feature of PTSD definitely is being hypervigilant socially, you know, expecting there to be harm out there, irrespective of, an, of anything, any, mm. any situation or context, scanning every situation for danger, already assuming there will be danger, you know, and that's her approach with everybody. Like, this is true as well for the perfectly nice man at work who asked for, you know, asked her for a drink, you yeah. know, later on. He seemed really sweet. <laughs> and yeah. He said, if you ever need anyone to talk to, you know, you can mm. come to me. That was a really nice invitation. Mm. But she didn't take it that way, you know? No. There's this real defensiveness, but defensiveness that seems almost preventative. Yes. More than reactive to any any form of attack or anything like that. It's more always thinking about the possibility of something happening and not ever allowing any possibility of anything to occur, whether good or bad. Yeah. And... We've been praising uh, Neve Algar's performance for our whole chat, and I spoke to her about the physical elements, the physicality of her performance. So let's just hear a little clip from that before we chat about it ourselves. Yeah, she's she starts as someone who sees herself represented. It's almost like how she's trying to project herself to the world as someone who's held together and coarse and quite and incredibly guarded you know she she's this is someone who over years has purposely isolated herself and physically closed herself off to people mm -hmm. including her family and because of that has hardened as a human and this myself and prano talked about how she has this almost like a reset like the correction of the posture mm -hmm. is because we kind of thought about, as you said, it completely tightly wound spring. And, and the problem with that is that it can snap at any moment. And the idea that if she if she doesn't keep on trying to stretch it out and, and correct it, eventually it will snap. And myself and Prano kind of workshopped for a, a couple of days the mm. the way in which she holds herself. And it's so funny that was this, she... <laughs> she, um, she described it as like imagining you're trying to squeeze an orange with your shoulder blades um, and that will <laughs> so every now and again Prano if I you know because I I'm not I naturally kind of hunt and um, sometimes you know if you're tired and I'd be going into a scene and you kind of forget so she would um, she just shout across across the set she'd be just like Neve uh, tangerine and I was like what the hell is she talking about and she was just referring to an orange so I was like alright she's telling me to like sit up straight so there was just like tangerine was being shouted at me um with something like this, with a character where she's in every mm -hmm. single frame, mm -hmm. for for it to like, for an audience to kind of buy into it and feel like that they're actually going on a journey with it, not just because of the story, but there has to be a journey about her body and how, how there's going to be certain pivotal moments within the script where you're going to see this person break and not just mm -hmm. emotionally, but physically. And myself and Prano did an emotional map of where those moments were going to take place within the script and you know 
one getting handed her sister's death certificate was one and, and that's it's like this knock and every time she's getting knocked you're seeing these cracks and mm. for a character like that it was just there was the physicality of also this picking away at oneself and picking away at your skin and for Enid I think there's this fear if you know if you pick hard enough what are you going to uncover and is it is it going to be something quite terrifying and rotten or is it going to be a release or relief? What do you make about Neve's performance and particularly kind of the, not just everything she does with her face, but also the, the way that she moves around the world as Enid and how that changes? Yeah, I think this is, in terms of pure physical performance, really startling and powerful mm-hmm. representation of that radical shift from neurosis to psychosis, mm-hmm. you know, from someone who's worked so hard, you know, so diligently at crafting this, I suppose, like image that they present to the world and it's their shield. It's the thing that covers up all the pain mm-hmm. and it has to be really perfect. It's, it's, I mean, it will come across as robotic it it will have to, you know, mm-hmm. because it's it's never going to be naturalistic, you know. Mm-hmm. There is no emotional register there because it's not meant to have one. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be very like an automaton, just going through the motions, you know, doing doing your job, showing up, maybe going the extra mile. She often stays late after work, you know, mm-hmm. and she wants to be seen as dependable and responsible, which is those things that. She felt she didn't have enough of when she was a kid. She's blamed herself because she wasn't that reliable big sister. Mm. Couldn't save Nina. Mm. So she's trying to make up for that. And she's trying to be like, really like superhuman in terms of uh, what she might emotionally be capable of. I mean, I thought it was really interesting what... uh, Neve said about the superhero element, mm-hmm. you know, that that is like this job gives her maybe a function mm. to live out and manifest her fantasy of maybe being like a superhero fighting crime in broken Britain of the mm-hmm. 80s, you know, like the crime rates are high. She sees this headline on um, saying that on, on the train. And when she reads that and she makes eye contact with the man in front of her who's reading the newspaper she actually looks a little bit proud content yeah Yeah. proud and content and happy because she knows what her role Mm. is in that equation she's the one fighting the video nasties you Mm. know she's going to be the one to stamp out the you know the filth that and the more we kind of journey with her in a very expressionistic style of filmmaking which I love it's my favorite Mm. which really depicts the psychological terror of the character the more we actually see oh my god you know she's really unraveling she's not all right Mm. Um, and then her body changes too you know she's no longer so confident moving with pride through her office she looks disheveled she looks uh, you know kind of discombobulated and, and, and frightened you kind of mentioned the 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 
period where the film is set. It's set in the <laughs> 80s and obviously it's it's 80s in Britain, which is a very specific time frame. So what do you make about the intersections of Britain in the 80s with the psychology of Enid? And I guess this is where her actual job as a film censor comes into play. I think it's really important and I feel like this film lives up to the psychological crisis of that time. Like it really does justice for me at an emotional level of what was going on. But what's really ironic to me mm -hmm. is that, you know, Margaret Thatcher and her Tory MPs, you know, mm -hmm. this new breed of the Conservative Party in the UK in the 1980s, they seem to pride themselves in the ideology of libertarianism. They said mm -hmm. that they wanted to bring freedom to the British people, that they wanted to liberate Britain from the tyranny of socialism. Mm -hmm. And yet, the, the kind of bizarre sort of moral watchdogs of her party were hell-bent on creating a scapegoat mm. out of like horror movies and like silly movies, <laughs> frankly, um, and kind of pointing in that direction and laying all the evils of the, of the world at the door of filmmakers and artists and saying that these people are going to corrupt your children. So we're going to ban these movies. And it's like, I just feel it's so hypocritical. A real libertarian would not do that. A real libertarian would not censor and repress artists. Mm -hmm. I suppose a, a silver lining has meant that a lot of great art has come out from mm -hmm. underneath the boot of that kind of repression. Mm -hmm. But it's also possible to make good art without making people suffer. <laughs> so, um, you know, they just went about it the wrong way. But I felt in the movie that was really well captured mm. because you could just sense that tension in the in the atmosphere of the film, mm -hmm. constant, like, I guess, fear-mongering that was also pushed out by the press that these video cassettes are dangerous and that poor guy working behind the, the video store counter you know mm. so afraid of renting out a video cassette i mean all of the men in this film are quite interesting as well alongside enid as our main character now doug smart but i think especially frederick north yeah. um, the the sort of this this shady almost satanic like figure of a film director who Enid becomes obsessed with and is almost mythical and she sees him as mythical for a brief moment of time kind of through her prism and I'm wondering kind of what do you think is the the connection perhaps with all of these male figures there's Doug mm. Smart the sleazy producer <laughs> there's the beast man and the and with his French accent and Frederick North yeah well I think that the beast man on the same level as Doug Smart they're more of the kind of like visceral danger of the video nasties. You know, the idea of what could happen to you physically in a movie. So mm -hmm. if you recall, when Enid visits Doug Smart's home, she even instantly recognizes that that's being used as a set for one of his films. Yes. The rape scene, right? Yes. So it's kind of already like a signifier in that house that maybe he's like... He's a bit of a perv, actually. You know, he mm -hmm. could get a bit handsy. I mean, he did get a little too close at a couple of points. And then when she told him she wasn't interested in anything physical with him, he got actually pretty um, out of bounds. And he grabbed her and he called mm -hmm. her a prick tease. 
So there is that kind of like sexual assault or um, physical component of the nasties with him specifically Mm -hmm. that I would also align with the Beastman. But I would say about Frederick North, though, Mm -hmm. that's a whole other realm of fear. That's now we're entering a territory of psychological or like mental torture Mm -hmm. because he's there in the kind of darkness shooting his camera straight at Enid and asking a lot Mm -hmm. of personal questions, you know, really putting her on a spot. And I couldn't help but think, I mean, I don't know this for certain. I haven't heard Prano um, confirm this anywhere, Mm -hmm. but I know that she loves Lost Highway. And I, Mm -hmm. I just felt like Frederick North looked a lot like the mystery man in Lost Highway. Oh my God. Yes, he kind of does. I mean, just with the whole like obsession with holding that camera in his hand and Mm -hmm. almost like stalking, you know, Mm -hmm. and asking very probing questions that Mm -hmm. seem uncanny and really scary. Like, I think a much scarier thing than, I mean, whatever the beast man is doing, you know, like Mm -hmm. something a lot more threatening. And that's what really scares Enid, I think. Um, Mm. that's what she doesn't want to encounter in these movies and what she wants to protect the world from, because that's what, you know, that, that, that stuff she's hiding. She's like covering up this stuff. Mm. She's hiding it from herself, really. Mm. So I think he's the mystery man, but I don't know for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if that's what Enid's afraid of, I think that's a wonderful and slightly unsettling note to end our conversation on, Mary. Thank you so much. And can you let me know where people can find more of your work online? Absolutely. Well, I did also want to just mention that in addition to the courses that I teach and my own podcast, uh, I have also a recurring segment on the Evolution of Horror podcast. And um, it's called Wild About Horror. I've also started a Patreon and you can find all of these details on my social media at Psychstar, P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R. That's my handle on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast has been produced by The Final Goals with the support of Vertigo Releasing. It's been edited by Olivia Graham with music by Emily Levenise Verhoosh, used with permission. Censor is out in UK cinemas on the 20th of August, so do seek it out. <laughs>